Hey everyone, I want to thank you for joining me for a special Mo News conversation. Today, I'm speaking with award-winning director and producer Ken Burns and his co-producer Sarah Bostein about their latest documentary, Exploring the U.S. and the Holocaust. It is airing this week on PBS. I've been a fan of Burns, as I'm sure many of you are, through his documentaries on Vietnam, baseball, civil war, and many, many other topics. He has a way of telling us honestly about American history, who we are as a country, the good and the bad. In this latest documentary on the Holocaust and the lead up to the war and the Holocaust, Burns Motstein and their fellow producer, Lynn Novick, dive deep into what was going on in the U.S. in the 1920s and 30s. There was a lot happening in regards to immigration restrictions, isolationism, and rampant anti-Semitism from some of the most prominent Americans. That includes Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh. I know you're going to find this conversation fascinating. Their conclusion is yes, the U.S. did ultimately defeat the Nazis and save global democracies, but there were some also very ugly sides to the war, the lead up to the war, what was going on in America, the challenges FDR had, and what FDR the federal government and the country could have done to save many more Jews and other victims from the Holocaust. Today's conversation is a tough listen at times. It is tough uh, to hear some of these negatives and what was going on here in the U.S. in the lead up and during the war. And it explores both the war and some of the unfortunate parallels we are seeing to trend lines today at home and abroad when it comes to anti-immigrant sentiment, isolationism, and an embrace of authoritarianism. In today's conversation, we also dive deep into what FDR did and didn't do as president and what more he might have been able to do, including the ongoing debate that has taken place for decades on whether the U.S. should have and could have bombed the concentration camps to stop all the killing that was taking place. They also dive deep into Hitler's motivations, including how he looked at the U.S. treatment of Native Americans and Black Americans partially as inspiration for some of his policies. Like I said, history is not always black and white. There are a lot of shades of gray here, and it is tough to hear, but it is an important part of our history, a comparison that Ken Burns likes to make in this conversation, and I I really like it, and you'll hear about it uh, later in our talk, is that he compares countries to athletes, that athletes and coaches after games will look at game tape. Could they have done something better? What were their successes and their failures? Burns and Botstein say here, the U.S., like a great athlete, like a country seeking to improve its performance, needs to look back at its own history, including failures, in order to make progress. Before we get started here, a reminder to subscribe or follow the show on whatever app you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Every review matters and helps us continue to grow the program. With that, my conversation on the new documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. Ken Burns, Sarah Botstein, I'm thrilled to be speaking with you about your new documentary. I've been a big fan of your work on all topics, Vietnam, jazz, World War II, for years, and I'm so grateful you could make time to be with me today. Oh, happy to be with you. And and we're speaking on behalf of our third uh, co-director, Lynn Novick, who, who is not here with us, but is an equal partner in this affair. Absolutely. I've, I've been, uh, I was telling Sarah earlier, I've been reading, trying to keep up with all of the media interviews you've been doing about this documentary. It's so great to see the amount of um, interest that media yes. globally has taken in the subject. I think it does speak, obviously, to where we are in 2022 right. and the parallels. I want to say up top, by the way, um, Ken and Sarah, that I've always been fascinated uh, by the subject because of my own family history. On my mom's side, my maternal grandfather was born in Breslau, Germany. Um, and in 1935, late 35, he and his father boarded a ship to Palestine. 
Um, and then in January of 39, I actually just went to the Ellis Island website last night as I was preparing for this, found the um, manifest of him and his father arriving at Ellis Island in January of 39 on a ship they took through Cherbourg, France. And it was eerie watching the documentary as you talked about the St. Louis story, you know, 39 is a significant year and how lucky I don't think I, I think I took for granted how lucky they were to be able to make it in as about 20,000 something German Jews got in that year. But there were 10 times that number that's um, right. on the but wait that's, list. That's the story we're telling. The story of the St. Louis is one that's turned away from Cuba. They were headed there and anti-Semitism in Cuba uh, made, it in, made it impossible for them to be accepted except for a handful. Um, the United States couldn't let them in. The Johnson Reed, uh, I want to say Immigration Act, but it's kind of Anti-Immigration Act of 1924 had set such minuscule quotas and such strict requirements that everybody aboard the St. Louis would have had to put their name in to apply to the United States, which they had not done. And that would have taken years. And so there is a kind of dramatic scene of them going up and down the Atlantic coast, but there was not um, a law on the land that would have allowed them to land, I'm sorry to say. And that's part of the really complicated story that we tell. What is What are the circumstances? Americans like to divorce themselves from any responsibility, and they don't have any responsibility. But when we could have let in people in the years leading up to what we now call the Holocaust. We let in more than any other sovereign nation, 225,000, but we could have easily within that pernicious uh, statutes of the Johnson Reed Act, let in five times as many and we did not. And it's not just on the administration and the executive, it's on the legislative branch. And more importantly, it's on the American people who are overwhelmingly opposed to letting anyone in and overwhelmingly, unfortunately, anti-Semitic in the character of their objections. Uh, to why people should be in. And the idea that Americans didn't know anything we prove is materially false. There were 3,000 articles in 1933 alone detailing the beginning of the repressive nature of the Nazi regime. That's the year that Adolf Hitler came to power. Yeah, that's one of the, where did the assumption come? I feel like growing up in America, we always got this impression that we, we didn't really know what was happening over there. And you you guys make a point, um, Sarah, I want to uh, direct this to you, um, very early on in the first part of the documentary of, of stating that statistic, that 3,000 articles were written in the first 100 days um, of Hitler's regime in 1933. Um, where did this impression develop? Is it just something we told ourselves to make ourselves feel better? Um, about the fact that we we did know what was going on, there was was incredible amount of media attention, and these are newspapers. This is newspapers in Chicago, in Pittsburgh, um, across the country. Um, what what did you learn about how much um, America was actually learning as the '30s went on? Thank you for asking that question. I think that's a central myth that we hope to puncture and explain in the series and you know, bringing up the fact that in 1933 alone, there were thousands of articles in newspapers all over the country. So this notion that Americans didn't understand the horrific conditions that were beginning and then throughout the 1930s um, on first German Jews, then German Austrian Jews, and then European Jewry at large is a myth that I think you just answered the questions. America likes uh, Americans like to tell ourselves to sort of help let us off the hook because 
as Ken just said, we're not responsible for the Holocaust. We were the great military might that helped win the Second World War and defeat fascism. Both of those things are extremely important to say up front. But we also have a deeply complicated history of anti-Semitism here at home, of an anti-immigration, anti-refugee sentiment and a tension here about what to do when a country on the other side of the ocean is in crisis or a people are in crisis. And I think those are, those are complicated tensions in American history, most notably during this time. Yeah, we, we tend to sanitize these things anyway, whatever it might be. And I think after the fact, we, which is when we write our history, it becomes, I mean, the Second World War becomes the good war, right? It's the worst war ever, ever, right. ever. Right, we're the greatest generation. We saved the, the world. Greatest, that's right. And I think yeah. it's convenient for us. And, and we, you know, American manufacturing and American sacrifice and Soviet sacrifice even more is what won that, that war. And, and that's a really, really good thing. And I think the story that we developed, you know, we got our story straight after the war, which is, oh, well, we then we liberated the concentration camps, and we did in some areas, mm -hmm. and we discovered this horrible thing that had happened and isn't that bad. Well, at that moment, when Americans knew the full horror and context of the Holocaust at the end of the war, only 5% of Americans wanted to let in anybody else. So that just begins to tell you what we've inherited. And, and, and our point is not here to shame or to scold. It, it, it's not about that. It's just to call balls and strikes. I mean, they're equally spectacular, heroic stories that will make you cry of individuals and organizations that worked and risked their own lives to save human beings in the course of this. There are, you know, there, there was a moment when we could have brought in many, many more people. And at the end of the war, unfortunately, when three quarters or 80% of the people who had been killed and we finally had boots on the ground, we, we had an organization called the War Refugee Board. That is an American invention that helped save tens of thousands of people in Hungary and Romania. And we, we attribute it to Wal, Raoul Wallenberg, a Swedish diplomat, but he was, the whole thing was being underwritten by the American Americans finally. And um, he considered himself working on an American project. And we've funneled money through. We, it was a spectacular thing. But I, I would just say, I don't want to denigrate what it did, but it was a little bit too late. It was like a late inning rally that still fell short. We could have saved hundreds of thousands of more Jews had we had the kind of political will and more importantly, the popular support for that political will, because it's, you know, the Johnson Reed Act is reflecting American values. The anti-Semitism in the country, Henry Ford is spewing the protocols of the uh, uh, protocols of the elders of Zion, that, that Russian hoax and fake. There's a radio priest, Father uh, Charles Coughlin, a Catholic who's spewing anti-Semitic bile. Charles Lindbergh becomes the spokesman of the anti-war isolationist America First Committee, and he is anti-Semitic in the extreme. And so you have this, this an American public and media environment steeped in this idea that somehow the Jews couldn't possibly be happening. Then it's okay, it's happening, but they brought it on themselves. Okay, this is really, really bad. And we're American fair play. We don't like this, but no, I don't think we can bring anybody else in. And then the even when the full extent comes, it's still no, I don't think we can bring anybody in. So we like to see our history in black and white, and it turns out there's many shades of gray, and that's something that, that yeah. you focus on. I was struck uh, during a visit I made to Berlin several years ago. Um, 
they have these small plaques in the sidewalk. I believe they call them stumbling stones or stumbling blocks. There's tens of thousands of these plaques in the ground. And, and if you're in central Berlin, you might look down as you cross the street and see the name of uh, a Jew or, or someone else killed in the Holocaust. And they make a point of using the word murdered, murdered yes. in the year. Um, and they have a, a museum, they have a memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, and it's in a central location there. Um, and it's just so interesting, both of you as, as historians, um, that in Germany, they take this very unique approach to the yes. sins of their past. Yes. Um, how does it compare to the way that Americans like to tell our history? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let Sarah tell, tell, answer this too. But, you know, look, we think we're the greatest country on earth, that we're the most exceptional country. And, and in many cases, there are some really good arguments why that's so. You would mm -hmm. think, therefore, we would be toughest on ourselves. We would be disciplined the way an exceptional athlete would be. You know, they're not worried about somebody else. It is so interesting that the perpetrators of arguably the greatest humanitarian crime in history have done a much better job at self-reflection and self-understanding. And Sarah and I are headed to Berlin next week to stumble on those blocks that way. But, um, you know, we don't do that. We, we just presume the best and then don't examine the difficulties. And even now, there's a movement afoot to sort of limit even further what stories we tell about ourselves. And you can't tell an inaccurate story without leading yourself down the road toward a kind of an authoritarian, you know, like Pravda. Here's, here's our glorious American past. And, and it is, but it also isn't. Mm -hmm. I think this is a really fascinating point that you bring up and question that you ask. I am so interested in the notion that you wouldn't want to think critically and deeply about your past and remember the successes and the failures to do better in the future. This is totally fascinating to me. Isn't the, isn't the point of history of critical thinking of Socratic ideas to ask questions, to debate, to think about how to make the world better, literally every day, every hour, every year, and to look at our history, which, as you say, is not black and white. Ken spent nearly 50 years thinking about how to answer, as he always says, the central question of who are we as Americans? What is this we would argue great country experiment and democracy and where have we gone wrong and where have we gone right and how right. do we make the future brighter for our children so i am i am so fascinated that we are now in a culture where we want to do the opposite which is a deeply undemocratic b not going to help us move forward in the future and not going to combat these notions of kind of authoritarian one note notions of how your history is taught and how your children learn at school. I, I love this comparison to athletes, you know, because, you know, many of us watch right. our sports and and the best athletes are the ones that watch the game tape afterwards. Yeah. Right. And even if they yeah. performed incredibly well, like, why didn't I get that rebound? Why or, or the coaches, right? I mean, right. suddenly you're going to say, we can't teach about slavery because that makes people uncomfortable. But by the way, you were terrible today in baseball or football or basketball or whatever sport you're playing, soccer. And, and here's what we did wrong. And we expect a kind of honest accounting because as Sarah says, if you don't know where you've been, you can't possibly know where you are or where you're going. And and if you're just painting this Pollyannish, rose-tinted you know, version of yourself, you're destined for 
second or third rate status. What's and you the, don't um, want to have you, you want to have a constructive conversation, a courageous, constructive, optimistic conversation. I, I really think it's, it's fascinating. What's the Mark Twain quote about history not repeating itself? Well, he is supposed to have said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And we've we've dined out on that for do- dozens of years. Um, you know, he's absolutely right. History has never repeated itself. A, a, an event has never occurred again. We're not condemned to repeat what we don't remember. This is lovely thinking. You know, we go back to Ecclesiastes, which says there's nothing new under the sun, which suggests that, by the way, is the Old Testament. And it suggests that um, human nature doesn't change. And it doesn't. You've got venality and virtue. You've got greed and generosity. You've got purience and puritanism all happening, not just between people, but within people. That's complicated. You know, Thomas Jefferson distilled a century of Enlightenment thinking into one sentence, our catechism that begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Yet he owned hundreds of human beings in his lifetime and didn't see the contradiction or the hypocrisy. So are we complicated? Yes. Are there only shades of gray? That's in fact the truth. There is no pure black and there is no pure white. It is somewhere in between. And to, to be honest about that is to be able to, as, as Sarah, the key word of what Sarah said is to be optimistic because you cannot have an optimistic view of yourself in the present or where you're going unless you have an accurate sense of where you've been. And the more you corrupt that with the propagandistic tactics of the authoritarians, the worse it gets, period, full stop. So so one thing I found fascinating, and, and even as I consider myself a, a student of American history, um, as a journalist, I've always found that context important, is the way you set the table uh, about America in the 1920s and 30s, um, the uh, the obsession with eugenics, um, the business leaders, notable personalities um, with their overt anti-immigrant and anti-Semitic sentiment, the immigration limitations, the first visas, um, right-wing media outlets, isolationist media outlets. Um, to, s- give us a sense from, especially coming off of what was several decades of mass immigration into the U.S. in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, set the table for everyone leading up to World War II. Where, where was America in the 1920s and 30s? Well, I think one of the reasons we found ourselves in the situation we were in in the 20s and 30s is because of those big waves of immigration you were just speaking about. I think what happened, and we explain this in the film in the 1920s, is that Americans were beginning to confront and deal with these large waves of immigrants people who didn't look and sound like themselves, who had different cultures, who had different ways of thinking, of different ways of living. And the, you know, this way that people, particularly Americans, and I think around the world, we we rank ourselves. We One immigrant group does well, they put another immigrant group down. Somebody looks different than you, you kind of other them. We have this very, I think, deeply upsetting way of wanting to have some kind of racial purity, which is why eugenics was so popular during this weirdly utopian notion that you could breed people the way you breed animals. And this is totally against, I think, the kind of great teachings of how humans should treat one another and what what it means to be a human being. So Uh, Americans were reacting in the 20s and 30s to all kinds of new people, all kinds of new technologies, all kinds of new ways of living. And there was a deeply 
resistant population saying, no, we want a different type of America. The Ku Klux Klan was ascended in the 1920s, and they were as anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant as they were anti-Black and anti-Jewish. So we, we really have to confront this deeply central part of American life, which is to be xenophobic, white supremacist, nativist, anti-Semitic, and racist. And that's real, and that's part of our history, and it was very, very, very popular in the 20s and 30s. The, the, the great fear among the white Protestants who had, who were and the majority um, were that they were going to be replaced, which is echoed, of course, in the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. So, I mean, you have these echoes or rhymes, Mark Twain might say, that are you know pretty disturbing, and they occur everywhere, not just in the United States. There's a increase in sort of the attraction and the flirtation with authoritarianism at home and abroad, and uh, you see that happening. Sweden, Sweden just fell to a right wing party that was anti-immigrant, virulently anti-immigrant uh, party. You see this obviously with Viktor Orban in Hungary and the, the sort of the, he becomes the darling of, of the ultra conservatives. In Germany, the conservatives thought they could control Hitler. So they installed him. They figured he'd be in six months, they said, you know, in our corner, in a corner squealing. And, and that didn't happen. And he steps up um, street warfare, but plays down anti-Semitism so that he can convince the country that it's the Bolsheviks and the and the lefts, and they're going to uh, win. So we have to, you know, consolidate our power. When in fact, a majority of Germans were going to vote for what we call progressive candidates, and so the authoritarian, realizing they would go out of power, said, "Who is the loudest and the most, you know, you know, uh, compelling kind of media star?" Well, it's Hitler. And so we put him in and we'll, we'll, we'll be able to control him. And, hmm. you know, what we get is what we got, which is, as one of our survivors said, the nadir of civilization. And it was very, very popular, as you were saying. So Ken mentioned Henry Ford earlier. Charles Lindbergh is as popular as the president of the United States. And these are American icons who are champion, championing the notion of an isolationist America first and deeply anti-Semitic country. I, I found the Henry Ford story to be fascinating. Um, it's funny, growing up as a, as a Jew in America, my parents were like, we're not buying German cars. And I start to, uh, so we never owned a, you know, uh, a, a German vehicle. We're gonna buy American. We owned Fords growing up in, the, in Chicago. Um, and you hear the story of, uh, of Henry Ford. Um, and you know, he's doing everything from blaming Jews for changing candy bar, his favorite candy bar, to killing Abraham Lincoln, um, he controlled the newspaper. Give me a sense, and if you could put it into a modern context, Ken, you know, as we talk about all these major CEOs in this country, right? The Elon Musks, the Jeff Bezoses, the Bill Gates, etc. Who, what, how prominent was Henry Ford, um, and and what was his um, worldview and his impact in the 1930s? It's just huge. You cannot um, deny it. First of all, he's the most celebrated industrialist, certainly car manufacturer, essentially taking uh, mass production and, and, and putting it on the grandest possible scale. I mean, River Rouge, the Dearborn, Michigan plant is, is, was a spectacular achievement. He bought a, a newspaper called the Dearborn Independent. And he turned it into uh, a newspaper with the second largest circulation in the United States. And he took that 
Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a completely virulently anti-Semitic tract, which you can go online and find is still the Bible of the anti-Semites. And he just gave it another oomph. It, you know, the Russian disinformation of the 19th century had done that. Jews were responsible for everything bad in the world. And so, you know, this was Henry Ford taking the baton in the relay race of anti-Semitism and handing it on. And, and I think it's much subtler now, but you see in, in, in the manifestations people, uh, you know, subscribing to these kind of strangely reactionary views and strangely anti-Semitic views, when in fact, if you were to step back and think about the contribution of the Jewish people who did not have a state for thousands of years until 1948, and what they were able to bring and how they they, they brought, as the historian um, Peter Hayes says in our film, they brought the notion of fair play and democracy and the golden rule, the idea of, of kind of broad, humane ideas to the world. And so it's no accident that when those who wish to stay in power or take power in various places always isolate the Jews and say, it's about us, our tribe, not theirs. They are the, the bad ones, having brought us great gifts uh, all the way through. And, and this is not even speaking about contributions in arts and sciences and, and architecture and film and, and all sorts of you know disproportionately great thing, not because of any cabal or conspiracy, but just because they have brought to us these great gifts of something more than a tribal relationship to who I am. You know, not a nationalist, not a nativist, not a just our tribe, but the fact that we are part of this larger humanity. One of the things I think in your question that's very interesting, and we've been talking um, a little bit about, but I've been thinking about more in the last couple of days as the film has broadcast out into the world is this dynamic of American Jews, like your family, who came here at different points at this time in history, and how, and my family came in 1949, and my grandparents and my father and my aunt and my uncle are very deeply patriotic. They are so grateful to everything America gave them, every opportunity, every, they, you know, would cry at the Pledge of Allegiance. They're deeply, deeply patriotic, even though it took my grandmother from 1935 to 1945. 49 to get the right papers in order to get here. So you can hold these two things at the same time. We can have failed to not let in more Jews. We could have failed at doing enough to help the Jews of Europe while they were dealing with this horrendous, horrendous crisis. One of the, you know, most terrifyingly deeply devastating and successful genocides probably in the history of mankind ever, and yet be so grateful for all the opportunity and the democracy and the freedom and the things that America symbolizes. So I think in, inherent in the film are all the gray areas and different ways to think about this. Right. There's no country that did more to bring about the end of the war. There's no country where um, Jews had more freedom to move up. Jews were serving as secretary of the treasury under FDR. Uh, you know, my it's funny you, you say that, Sarah, because my, my grandfather who passed and, and came aboard that ship in 39, every flag day, he'd make a point of putting out the American right. flag. 
Right. He served in the U.S. Army uh, starting in, in, I think, about 43 during World War II after coming on that boat. Right. And then, you know, on my other side of my family are Moroccan Jews who have a very had their own history of the, the king there opposing the Vichy government. Um, and, yeah, was life perfect for the Jews in Morocco? No, but the affinity in which they hold the country and the king for what he did to protect them. And so I think, generally speaking, history is is all these shades of gray. You can yeah. You can love this country and love what it's about, but also... Um, be do a reality check on our history um, and recognize and, that this is that, that for the U.S. and the Holocaust and how we help the 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 Jews fleeing is not our greatest moment on the one hand and yet right I I, I was struck by the way um, the way that you document FDR um, and the challenge that he had um, through his first term and his second term and his third term um, as he was dealing with he had a pretty good gauge for where the country was at in terms of isolationism. It's, um, uh, it's, it's anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, and it's, um, anti-Semitism. Talk to me about essentially how FDR had to tiptoe, um, in throughout the 1930s. And then even as world war two, um, starts in Japan and Europe, um, in regards to, uh, the Jews, uh, and the Holocaust. Yeah, it's a it's a very complex and very nuanced thing. It is with the bludgeoners of history easy to sort of blame it on F, FDR. He's the he's the head of America. Why can't he do these things? It's so interesting because he has appointed, as you say, more Jews uh, to his administration than any other previous president. Um, the enemies, you know, you're defined in some ways by your enemies. The virulent anti-Semites called him Frank D. Rosenfeld, insisted that he was under the power of the Jews and called his signature uh, domestic program to lift us out of the depression, the Jew deal. So Roosevelt's got a really complicated thing. Do, did he do enough? No. Could he have spoken louder? Yes. But he is dealing with a basically isolationist and and deeply anti-Semitic country. He knows that the Congress, which has passed the Johnson-Reed Act, is filled with members of his own party, conservative Southern Committee chairmen who've been in place for years and years. He's not going to be able to change these things. He has to understand that there's a bigger picture, if you can imagine. And it looks to us in retrospect incredibly uh, heartless that the bigger picture is that the United States, regardless of what anyone thinks, is going to be drawn into the next war, which is happening. And that he has to prepare our country, which has an army smaller of that of Bulgaria, to be ready for it. And so, as the scholar Peter Hayes again says in our film, looking back, that we can't believe why the humanitarian thing wasn't central to him. And it may have been in his heart, but he was trying to revoke the neutrality acts that kept us from helping our allies. Had we not been able to do, had he not been able to do that with just, he is the most masterful politician of the 20th century. Who knows what we would be thinking and what we may be speaking German in this country because we learned from our doing our World War II film that the Germans were training a cadre of people to take over and administer, as they called it, every section of the country. So we can just say that's a counterfactual hypothetical, and it is, but the Germans were prepared to actually um, oversee the United States once they'd subdued Russia and Britain and, and all of that. And I'm, you know, we have to put his, his lack of kind of what we want him to, 
to have done in the context of what he could have gotten done and how much political capital he had and where he was going to spend it. And so we certainly hold his feet to the fire at very appropriate places that he sounds he sounds cold and heartless. He looks cold and heartless. But there are other times when you realize, oh my goodness, if we had not had him, where would we be as a, as a country? And I think in the end, having um, brought in more refugees, not enough, having helped create the War Refugee Board, a small little drop in the bucket, but more importantly, having transformed American manufacturing, which is probably the single greatest factor in winning the war, having been allied with the Soviets who had more human sacrifice than anybody else and having in American and other allies sacrificed on the Western part of the European theater of war. That's what stopped the remaining 3 million Jews out of the nine that were there when Hitler took power from being killed as well. And yeah. So, you, you, you really um, do an incredible it's job of, it's, of complicated. Take, it's, I, I think that's the general theme of, yeah. of this documentary. Of all, this, all, of all history. In fact, we have in our editing room wall a neon sign in cursive, lowercase cursive, that says it's complicated because there's not a filmmaker in the world that doesn't want to, if a scene working, you don't want to mess with it. And so what we have is um, you have filmmakers here that are very interested in messing even with scenes that are working. It's it's um, one of the things that I I love about this as a reporter who covers politics on a day-to-day basis and looks at polling is you bring up multiple polls of the American people throughout the thirties and forties. And the numbers struck me, um, incredibly that, um, even following Kristallnacht in 1938, um, two thirds of Americans polls say the Jews brought this upon themselves. Oh, there's a fortune poll that you mentioned in the documentary in 39 that shows that 54% of Americans want to help both the Nazis and the allies and only 20% of Americans, this is in 1939, knowing what we know, want to only help the democracies there. And this is the country that, that uh, FDR was governing at that point. Right. Yeah. So you got to just put that in perspective, like what, you know, we're going to, you know, temporize until we're, you know, taken over. He's not going to let that happen. And this is a period in which lots of people are turning to authoritarian options. And he's even asked in his inaugural address for this kind of powers to wage against the depression that a, that, that a, a, a president would have in a time of war. Uh, and it's sort of scary, but he didn't go that way. And we are very, very fortunate. And in fact, when we talk about it in a kind of um, exceptional way about the engine of democracy, you know, you would think that the authoritarians would be able to produce more stuff. And the Germans were way ahead when we got started. As I said, Bulgaria versus the greatest military force probably on earth at that time. Second would be the Japanese. And we beat them. We caught up. We lapped them. We We outproduced them. We outfought them, our allies. And we won. With the help of the aforementioned Henry Ford and his factories. Uh, right. <laughs> Again, it's complicated, so, right? So you go back and let's just talk about there is a, a uh, the River Rouge plant, I, which is mass assembly of cars, but there's Willow Run uh, in Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is producing the fighter bombers every hour. They're producing one. Um, you know, Lindbergh called it the Grand Canyon of the mechanized world. And there were pilots. You were shipped to Ypsilanti, Michigan, and they came out and they flew their planes in leaps, you know, to whatever, to Newfoundland, to Iceland, to whatever, to the European theater every hour. 
crews were leaving there. It was just a spectacular thing. In fact, there had been, I can't remember exactly the year, but Roosevelt went to probably, it was 40, Roosevelt went to manufacturers and said, you made 2,500 aircraft last year. I need 50,000. They said, we can't do it. And he said, yes, you can. Hmm. And, um, you know, these are the people who hated him for the depression and the, and the new deal tactics. He made them fortunes and they did do it. They did manufacture it. Well, one thing I like to clarity on is the election of 1940. Um, and maybe it's the fact that I've read plot against America and, um, that seeped into, uh, my impressions <laughs> and, and, and that book for those who haven't read it is a, is a book where Charles Lindbergh runs against, um, FDR, um, Charles Lindbergh, who was talking about his America first platform. Um, talk, talk to me about how, how at risk was the country specifically in that election? Um, how likely was it that Charles Lindbergh might run for president or someone like him might defeat FDR and, and how much that went, how much of that went into how FDR was basically trying to uh, ride the line here in the uh, years leading up to the war? Well, that's a great way to ask that question because I think it goes to the center of part of what Ken was just speaking about FDR being a brilliant very mindful, very careful politician who understood how, I mean, the only person, and we say this in the script, Jeffrey C. Ward, who's a great Roosevelt scholar, writes, you know, the only person more popular, equally popular to FDR in the country was Lindbergh. And if you look at the newspapers, it's not just that they're often on the same page, front page together, but they're often two cartoons of them at the same time. And this isolationist America first, um, constituency was very strong. Lindbergh was very popular. He was, you know, the most famous person, a f most famous American outside of FDR. And he was very, very, very effective in capitalizing on post-World War One this isolationist sentiment, why entangle ourselves? We're coming out of a depression. There are many crises here at home. Keep, look inward, not outward. And there's also anti-Semitism. So, I mean, you know, what would history have looked like? It's the what ifs of history. We leave that to Philip Roth. There's Ken's really going to say something. <laughs> no, there's a really important point here about the election of 1940 and the election of 1944. Less important. I think everybody was going to give him a chance to do it, but it, they're very close elections. Not like his big victory in 32 against Herbert Hoover and his landslide victory against Alf Landon in 36. Is that Wendell Wilkie is a Republican in the in the old fashion. He's an interventionist. He is in support of Roosevelt preparing the country. And so is Thomas Dewey in 44. The war is already going. So there's not a question that everybody's for the war effort. It's just how you're going to prosecute it. So what you have is essentially an important partnership that takes place. Wendell Wilkie is not going to attack the president for the ways that Father Coughlin might or had, hmm. had been doing, or that, that as Sarah's saying, Charles Lindbergh would, so that you have the decent people of the country rallying to, to do what is right, even though we get these disturbing polls, even though we know the prevalence of the anti-Semitism, we have to balance it with the other things. When, when we are attacked, this country mobilizes and just completely inverts the situation that we have watched take place in the 30s. Having said that, we did not in any way make the war about the liberation of the Jewish people who are being imprisoned and slaughtered. We did not 
do anything to sort of, you know, divert war efforts to try to save them with the exception of the War Refugee Board. And that was a kind of special one-off deal. We didn't, even when we understood the full context of what was taking place in the Polish, Nazi-occupied Polish killing centers, right? The Auschwitzes and the, the Treblinkas and the Majdanek's and the Sobibors and the Belzics. These are the Chelmno. These are the horrible places on earth where mm-hmm. they're there to just kill Jews or work them to death in slave labor. The concentration camps are the slave labor part and we're going to, we're going to burn their remains. We didn't, we didn't say this is what this is about. We're going to sacrifice pilots or, or soldiers to, to put an end to this. We did not do that. And it, that was something that I'm disappointed just as Lincoln faced a long and perilous time, but fortunately relatively early on in the war, he converted it from just union to emancipation. And that had huge backlash. There was an Illinois regiment that said, we would rather lie down and let moss grow on our backs than the fight for uh, Illinois regiment to fight for the liberation of the N-word. That was something remarkable that FDR couldn't, even as the war was taking place, even as the country knew what was going on, couldn't make it be about, let's save the Jews who are in these camps. We're saving democracy. Right. That was like Lincoln's union. We're saving democracy. We're not saving Jews. We're saving freedom. We're not saving Jews. Nobody's saying that out loud. But the, but by shifting it to Jews, it could have, even within the war effort, ignited a firestorm of controversy. And there was a worry about morale of the troops if you were being sent. I mean, one of the riskiest things, as we know firsthand from studying it, was to be a member of a, bi- a bomber crew. Right. Mm-hmm. You just It's like it's not a good you know, job for life expectancy. And if you knew you were going not to bomb a factory, not to bomb a munitions thing, but you were going to what bomb the rail lines at Auschwitz, that was the only option we had. Auschwitz was the closest to our air base. We could have done it. In fact, we accidentally, because our bombs were spectacularly imprecise, 80% of the bombs dropped in Europe by allied forces fell outside of five miles of their intended target. So you're going to land on a railroad track that could be replaced or do you bomb Auschwitz itself? And what is, what kind of, what kind of moral questions does that raise? Is there a right answer in that? You stop the killing or you do and do more killing or you don't do it. And the killing continues. It's just a kind of huge, huge question that, you know, the philosophers can debate for the rest of humanity. Right. You guys debate it in the documentary itself and you don't come to a clean conclusion on it. Um, and How it's interesting because about it. And, and we grew up in a time now where we have precision bombers, right? Literally, they can send a missile through a window. And you're talking about most of these bombs dropping more than five miles um, outside. Uh, and this has been a mantra for many, many years. Yeah. Like, why didn't we bomb the concentration camps? Why didn't we stop what was going on? What were the downsides? Uh, and I can imagine part of it could have just been propaganda. The, you know, the Nazis could have said, well, you know, the Americans are the ones that uh, killed people in the country camp with their bombs. I mean, w- take me through that debate that the White House was having. How much of a debate was it really about bombing those concentration camps? It was impracticable. That was the recommendation. And, okay. and, and just think about it. I mean, first of all, it three quarters or more, 80% of those people who are perishing in the Holocaust are have already been murdered before we had an airbase, Foggia in Italy, that would have allowed a, a, a plane to go to Auschwitz and back on a single tank of gas, Auschwitz being in southwestern 
Poland and uh, Nazi occupied Poland. The Polish people don't have anything to do with these killing centers. And, and then what do you do when you get there? If you can't bomb the railroad tracks that could be replaced overnight, do you bomb the camps? Some people, the accidental bombs fell in Auschwitz intended for an IG Farben synthetic rubber plant five miles away. And a Dutch physician who was in prison there re- remembers the absolute terror. Later on, Elie Wiesel, who was also there, said he, he would have been willing to be bombed uh, mm. in order to to stop the process of it. By this time, the Germans are going to lose the war and they know it, right? So we're we're just, we're waiting. It's, it's really the calculus. Are the Russians going to come in from the east and liberate it, which they actually do? Auschwitz, do you do it? And so we permit this debate because that's one of the tropes and one of the sort of conventional, superficial conventional wisdoms about the war. Ah, oh, we should have bombed the rail lines at Auschwitz. First of all, if we could hit them, which is probably completely unlikely, mm-hmm. they could be replaced overnight. If we could hit them, we would probably be losing air crews, which would have meant people were going to find out that the war had been redirected to say that who knows what the political calculus would have been that. Mm-hmm. And then if you, if you move into the idea of bombing Auschwitz to stop the killing, that means you're killing inmates before they're killed, Right. So, so just, by the time we could have done it, it was 1944. The majority of Jews in the camps had already been killed. Um, so there's just a, a lot of that's things. Not a, that's not an excuse not to save all the remaining Jews right. of Europe. But it's just you, you're ending up with a big, huge question. You know, one of the big moral questions I think we've ever encountered. And that is why we permit two of our most distinguished scholars in the film, uh, Deborah Lipstadt, uh, arguably the most important Holocaust scholar ever, and Rebecca Erbelding to to sort of have a conversation together in which that kind of lose-lose aspect of this is, is, is I think, teased out. Sarah? And then the, the only thing I would add to what Ken was saying, and Deborah Lipstadt makes this point, and in working on the film, I actually have come personally to be more sympathetic the more particularly older generation of Jews who I speak to, I think the reason, one reason this becomes such a central question is because they wanted Americans to send a message, as Deborah Lipset says, that mm-hmm. said, we know what mm-hmm. you are doing and it is not okay. And that I think was Elie Wiesel's point. And so I think yes. that all the things Ken just said, absolutely. And all the things that Rebecca or Belding brings up. And yet there was something symbolic to the remaining right. Jews who were in the camp and symbolic to the Jews around the world for Americans to make some kind of a statement there. Yeah. And that I think is important for us to also talk about. Yeah. And, and we had already said, we've learned what you're doing. We know what you're doing. We're going to punish you when we win this war. So we've said that. But right. the point is, we're not equating it in a, in a really direct way. And so you've got these huge, huge, unbelievably difficult quandaries that you have to, to understand. One thing um, that when we speak about the dark side of American history, um, you get into a bit is how Hitler looked at mm-hmm. American history, uh, Jim Crow laws, mm-hmm. um, our history of Native Americans, mm-hmm. um, even our immigration quotas, mm-hmm. um, fondly. Um, explain how Hitler uh, viewed the U.S. Um, in his le- in his years leading up to taking power, uh, writing his book, uh, and then in power, um, yeah. how 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 did he view the United States um, as as he looked at how he would execute his policies? Yeah, so you know, 
sit down, you know, don't be standing up. Um, he admired what we'd done to our native populations. That's what he wanted to do to his wild east. He didn't consider the Slavic people real people. He didn't consider the Orthodox Christians real people. He, he didn't consider the Jews, obviously, real people. This was just a place to get the breathing room that he felt that the, the Third Reich had. And so he had, in contemplating this, admired what we had done with, to our native populations, the ne necessary murder and then isolation of the survivors into, as he put them, cages, meaning reservations, meaning concentration camps, I guess. Um, he loved our Johnson Reed Act. It showed our virility, you know, that we were willing to sort of favor Nordic, uh, Northern European, he would say Aryan populations and have minuscule quotas, which are going to help contribute a decade and a half later to the horrible, you know, inability of the United States to rescue more Jews than they, than they did. Um, and uh, he la later, German jurists, I have no idea whether it's under his direction, but jurists, German jurists studied our Jim Crow laws in order to perpetuate that. By that time, he was souring on the United States. He saw us as weak and he, he considered us... Um, under the sway of blacks and black culture, meaning jazz, and under the sway of Jews, because the Roosevelt administration was clearly dominated, he felt by it. And, and a lot of, of the anti-Roosevelt stuff that was distinctly anti-Semitic was also generated by the Germans. And, and in some ways, the misreading of us is a, is a really good turn in history, because one of the big mistakes, I, I'd say the biggest was invading Russia, but that's on his mind all along. He makes the pact and then he reneges on it. And he just can't do what Napoleon can't do, what anybody can do is go all the way to Moscow and take over the Russians. It's just why they're, you know, who they are, and it's a big country, and it gets really cold there. So they beat him back. That's the Soviet sacrifice. They lose tens of millions of people in this war. It's it's just pretty hor horrific. But his second big blunder was declaring war on us after the Japanese attack. You know, he Franklin Roosevelt could declare war in Japan, but on the eleventh of on the eighth of of December, but. On the 11th, Hitler and Mussolini declare war on the United States. And so this is the greatest gift that Franklin Roosevelt would have. I mean, we're talking about the horrible beginning of our part of the greatest cataclysm in human history. But it, it, it allowed us to have the Nazis be our enemy and not still have people saying, well, you know, they're Wait, not so Wait, so there's an alternate history here, you're saying, that after Pearl Harbor, we are at war with Japan if the Nazis don't declare war on the U.S., there could be a scenario it's, where we're only fighting a Pacific war? It's hard to think about that kind of counterfactual parlor game conversation. I don't know how it would have happened. I trust that Franklin Roosevelt would have done that, uh, helped us get there, but it might have delayed it. It might have mm. meant that, remember, we don't get it. And the North African stuff is, is, is you know, really late in the game, you know, the war ends in, in early 45 and we're not in North Africa until late, you know, I think it's August of 42. And then the, the real victories aren't until uh, 43 and we don't have boots on the ground until 43 in, in Sicily and Italy. I mean, it's just, it's late in the game. So anything that attenuates that allows more slaughter of Jews, mm. delays the ability of us to open up a Western front Italy doesn't represent the full Western Front, but the Western Front that's going to happen on D-Day 44, less than a year before the war is over, right? You know, 
so so you've got it's it's a very complicated dynamic and you don't want to spend a lot of time with the what if it's like what if yep. the south won the civil war you, you know i can talk a good game about it it didn't happen hitler declared war on us and that liberated franklin roosevelt in a way to just go see let's do this people and mm-hmm. he did it so I, I want to get to the end of the war you um and i, I want to get a couple questions here before we have to go one is general eisenhower uh, he you talk about how important sarah um, he saw it was to document what he witnessed, the concentration camps, um, in a fear that there could be future denial of what took place. This is something that Eisenhower had the, the vision of in 45. Why did he feel, why did he have that fear that people would deny what would happen? And, and why did he prioritize so getting people, getting video, getting documentation of what took place? I don't think I'm equipped to speak about why he thought people would deny it. I think there is an incomprehensibility to the whole thing, right? Six million people is incomprehensible. Daniel Mendelssohn makes that point over and over in our film, and Ken's been talking a lot about that. It's one of the reasons that we felt so compelled to make sure that we interwove firsthand testimony and the stories of individuals and their families and what happened to them so that people can begin to under, uh, even c- contemplate what it means for 6 million people to have been killed in these ways. Um, so, you know, I think what's reassuring about what Eisenhower did and the Russians took a lot of pictures too, and they made sure that the, the, the early camps were documented in some very devastating ways. And we show that material I think um, we include a letter from a GI, Joseph Wyant, writing back to his father. And that was, you know, we work very closely with our board of advisors and our scholars all the way through the process of making the film. And in our first script meeting, this, this question of the documentation of the camps, what was being shown, Eisenhower bringing a congressional delegation and making sure the world could see the march of time, you know, the the Nazi um, atrocity, uh, Nazi murder mills, just h- how Americans were going to make sure that this was documented in a documentary way. And Joseph Wyant writes back to his father and says, you know, basically to your question, People need to see and know what happened so that this cannot happen again, because the idea that humanity can do this is incomprehensible. Can you, you, you take us up to the, in the third episode, you take us up to today. Um, And you've talked about how the U.S. has had three great crises and we may be entering our fourth here um, in in our history. We're in 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 our, we're in our fourth great crisis, the Civil War, the Great Depression, World War II, and now we're in number four. Berlin was a very vibrant place leading up to the 30s. People forget that. And it seemed to have flipped overnight or seemingly overnight. But when we compare U.S. to the Weimar Republic, we're saying, well, we've had a democracy for several centuries here. They were just this nascent democracy. Um, what, what are the differences? What can give us confidence, I guess? And, well, and I what are Well, I think that's a really good point. You know? That's a super good point. It's a really good point. But, you know, if you wanted to be on the greatest, most vibrant place on earth in 30 and 31 and 32, you'd look no further than Berlin in mm. arts and music and in culture and ideas and in uh, science, every, uh, everything. It's just uh, cinema. 
painting. It's really, it's, it's spectacular. And then it wasn't. So I think that's what you have to take seriously. The problem is we've been hamstrung for a long time with Holocaust discussions because you don't want in any way equate anything that's going on with the Holocaust. It's nothing. It is singular and we hope it remains singular in its stuff. Even though other genocides have taken place in Rwanda and in Bosnia-Herzegovina and, and Syria and the, with Uyghurs, more than a million imprisoned in China and with Rohingyas in South Asia, this is, the, 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 you know, the world has not learned the never again slogan. But something of this magnitude, of this, this industrial scope, we can't, there's nothing. And the comparisons become specious and, and completely unfair. However, what brings us to that moment are sets of authoritarian actions. And there's a drip, drip, drip that happens in the course of it. Our scholars remind us again and again and again, and our survivors remind us it's little bits and bits. So I would, I would say to end this is to take something that Deborah Lipstadt says in our film. And she says, the time to stop a genocide is before it happens. I would say, and the reason why we brought things up to the present, the time to save a democracy is before it's lost. There's a Winston Churchill quote uh, that Americans will always do the right thing only after we've tried everything else, right? Exactly. Now is the time for all good people to come to the aid of their country. And it doesn't, I'm not talking to any political party, just good people. You cannot be susceptible to the to the promises, the empty promises of authoritarians. Uh, this this is the the big big challenge of today, and why it is a crisis. My last film was on Benjamin Franklin, who said, "You know, a republic if you can keep it." And for two hundred and forty six years, we've done a pretty good job of keeping it. But now, institutions that we thought were bedrock that survived the Civil War, that survived the Depression, that survived World War II, are now in question. You know, the notion of free and fair elections, the idea of a peaceful transfer of power, the idea of an independent judiciary free of political motivations and political influence instead of just the law, the idea that one person could be above the law. All of these things are tremendously worrisome and are points along the line of the continuum of what we've watched in this film, but also that takes place throughout human history. Jefferson in the Declaration suggests that human beings are susceptible to accepting the yoke of tyranny, which suggests that democracies require an extra effort on the part of people, of civic engagement, of flipping voting, which people don't do in the United States. It's kind of like, a, you know, it's, it's, we're leaving money on the table by not voting. And so I think we've got an obligation to say that if you wish to save democracies, parliamentarian or, or our kind of constitutional democracy, you got to get going because these things evaporate very quickly. Just ask the residents of Berlin. Don't, don't take what we have for granted. Don't take our freedoms for granted, even in the longest uh, lasting modern democracy. Knock on wood. All right. Exactly. Sarah Botstein, Ken Burns, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for uh, your incredible work here. That really was a remarkable and powerful conversation with Sarah Botstein and Ken Burns there. We only had an hour to speak. I know we could have gone on for several hours. I am such a history nerd, and I think these issues are so important for us to dive into. You can catch their three-part documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, on PBS. Part three is set to air tonight, Wednesday, September 21st, but will be replayed. It is PBS. It'll also be available on demand on PBS.com and the PBS app. 
I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News podcast. I'd love your feedback on how we're doing. What other issues you'd like me to be covering? Email me over at podcast at mo.news. You can subscribe to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode and review us in the App Store. Every review makes a difference and continues to help us grow the show. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.